Today on Blue 58, J.J. Watt won't be joining the Packers, but we did get to hear from a big addition on that side of the ball for the first time this week. New defensive coordinator Joe Barry spoke to the media Tuesday afternoon. What was your first impression? Well, I'll tell you mine. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. And what an episode it is. It is jam-packed. Today, we're going to do a lot. We're going to talk about J.J. Watt real quick. We're going to talk about Joe Barry. We're going to talk about how we're going to measure Joe Barry's first season. Then we're going to recap the seasons the Packers had from their linebackers and running backs. I want to make sure that we get to all this stuff today because I don't want to get too far behind uh, what we're doing with the positional recaps because there's a lot of stuff that I want to get into before we get into real draft season. And once we hit free agency, it's really going to start shifting over toward NFL draft talk. So we're going to dive right into all of this stuff today. First, J.J. Watt not signing with the Packers. I don't think this is a huge surprise to anybody who really looked at this situation super honestly. Would it have been cool? Sure. Yeah, I like the story. Uh, And the Packers could use help on their defensive line just as much as about anywhere else on the team outside of like quarterback and maybe their very top wide receiver spot. Why wouldn't you be interested in adding a player if you think he's still good? Of course, that would be great. And on top of the fact that he grew up in Wisconsin, played college ball at Wisconsin, seems to be interested in the Packers in general. Why not? Why not be interested there? But the math obviously was never going to be in the Packers' favor. That's a lot of money uh, for a guy, for anybody, Uh, much less a guy who's 32 and has been injured a lot over the past few years. I get it. Um, I I really get it from Arizona's perspective. Look at the NFC West. Uh, Los Angeles is in what I would characterize as a bit of a soft rebuild right now. They're kind of going for it with Matthew Stafford, but it's going to be Stafford carrying them and not a whole lot else because they don't have a whole ton of room to maneuver and they don't have a ton in in the way of draft picks there either having shipped a whole bunch off for for Matthew Stafford. Uh, Seattle, who knows what's going on there. With Russell Wilson maybe sort of slightly forcing his way towards an exit from Seattle, they're looking kind of vulnerable. So you're sitting there as Arizona, you think we've got an exciting young quarterback. Sure, things weren't that great on that side of the ball, but our defense is pretty good. And Chandler Jones is coming back, healthy, hopefully. Why not add J.J. Watt and see what happens? It's a little bit like the defensive version, I think, of Tom Brady last offseason. He's looking at a team that's potentially on the upswing, maybe a couple breaks away from really going on a run. And uh, you just slide right in there and bring the team a little bit together and Away you go. Maybe J.J. Watt has that kind of effect on the Cardinals. You can see why it makes sense for him. You can see why it makes sense for him just from a money perspective, and I cannot blame him for that at all. If I had the opportunity, let's let's just say say J.J. Watt does end up playing somewhere between six and eight games this year, 10 games even, not a full season, and it turns out that he was wildly overpaid. That's not his problem. And if you had the opportunity, wouldn't you choose to be wildly overpaid? I certainly would. That is like one of my life goals. I want to be wildly overpaid for whatever it is I'm doing. So it just makes sense for J.J. Watt, and it's unfortunate that there is at least a glimmer of hope there, however real or not real it may have been, but uh, he is not going to be coming to Green Bay. Joe Barry is 
however, in Green Bay. We got to hear from him today as well as from Matt LaFleur and a couple of the other position coaches or coordinators, excuse me, as well as Brian Gutekunst. And for me, at least, LaFleur and Barry were the story today because that's the big real new thing here. That's the real big question mark. And there's a lot of question marks there, but let's talk about Joe Barry in particular first and foremost. Matt LaFleur talked about liking his energy, about liking feeling comfortable with him. That's fine. If, if that's what you want, I guess go for it. But Barry himself, um, well, let's talk about the good first and foremost. I don't think there's anything that we can say bad about Joe Barry right now because there's just so much we don't know. So really, my impressions of, of Barry break, break down into two categories. First, the good, and second, the unsure. First, the good. You like his energy. Uh, he seems upbeat. Uh, in a piece I wrote today for AcmePackingCompany.com, I described Mike Pettin as taciturn to a fault. And look, me being the way that I am as a person, the way that Mike Pettin approached things really spoke to me. It's not for everybody. It's not right. It's not wrong. But it is a certain way. Joe Barry is a different kind of way. He's a little bit higher strung than Mike Pettin. And that's a nice change of pace. I don't mind that. Second thing I like about Joe Barry, and I'll admit maybe this is me talking myself into it a little bit, but I like his adaptability. You look at how guys go through their careers in the NFL, and a lot of them end up falling into one system and kind of sticking with that their entire career. You're a Tampa 2 guy. You're a, you know, old Dick LeBeau zone blitz guy. You're a 4-3 guy. Whatever it is. Joe Barry isn't really that. And he's made his money in the NFL figuring out how to contribute to a wide range of systems. He's worked with Monty Kiffin in the legendary Tampa 2. Worked in other versions of the 4-3. He's worked in a Wade Phillips version of the 3-4 scheme. And now he's worked most recently for a branch of the Vic Fangio version of the 3-4 scheme. I kind of like that. I like that he's been able to contribute at all of those different spots. I don't know what it means for his ability as a coordinator overall. If there is a knock on his career as a coordinator so far, it's that he really hasn't had a defining system or or level of success. And part of that, as Matt LaFleur spoke to today, has been the talent level he's had to deal with first in Detroit and then in Washington. You wish he could have elevated that a little bit more? Sure, but maybe he did. Maybe that was the result of him elevating that. So I kind of like that he has been a part of a bunch of different systems. What I'm unsure about is something that both he and um, Matt LaFleur talked about. He seems really kind of vague. He mentioned a version of this several times, or this phrase several times, about putting his stamp on the defense. And then every time he said that in his newser today, he followed it up with, I'm not going to tell you what that stamp is yet, or I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly what that's going to look like. That's a little concerning to me, and that's something I'm a little bit unsure about. He didn't seem to articulate his philosophy that he believed in very well from a schematic perspective. We heard a lot about how defense is about getting off blocks and tackling and and covering well, which is all true, Uh, but I I would have liked to hear some more specifics. Um, Can't really hold that against him too much, though, because 
that's really not what these things are for. And we'll get a little bit more specific as, as the offseason and as training camp and all that stuff goes on. Secondly, I'm a little bit unsure about how often, how much both he and Matt LaFleur talked about how his career has been defined by relationships, because that is kind of the major knock on Joe Barry. The, the nepotism phrase comes out a lot when you talk about his NFL career. Did he really get any of his jobs because he's good at what he does, or did he just happen to know people? And happening to know people and getting jobs as a result of it isn't a bad thing for you. It just may not mean you're always hiring the best person. That is something that got my ears pricked up a little bit. And again, we there is so much we don't know about Joe Barry. So, so much. And we didn't learn a whole lot more today. But first impressions, some of that stuff is a little bit vague and it makes you feel a little bit unsure. Some of it, at least it's a change of pace. So having said my piece about the hiring process and all that, Speaking of the hiring process, it sounds like it was extremely thorough. If you take Joe Barry at his word, and I don't see any reason why not to, it was something like 14 hours of conversations between him and Matt LaFleur before he got offered the job. And keep in mind, he was probably the second candidate for the 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 vast majority of the time that he was in the running here. It sounds like Jim Leonard was the first choice. If LaFleur was doing that much work on his second candidate, he was at the very least good to talk to. And you can't fault Lafleur for that, I suppose. So maybe some things we're unsure about, but I think first impressions are, I'm, I'll, I'm willing to listen to what he has to say from here. I, I can't rule this out out of hand. And so I think we, we wait and see. We can, though, start talking about what it is we're going to do to measure Joe Barry as a coach. Three or four different people have asked me a version of this question, but the most precisely phrased version came from Ted. So thanks to George and Chris and Ted for sure, and I may be missing a couple other people in there for asking a version of this question. Ted asks, what should the key metrics be to determine if the new defensive and special teams coordinators are worthwhile investments for the Packers? Would it be as simple as if the Packers net a Super Bowl victory, or would it fall to the team's yardage and point rankings improving relative to the past few years? For special teams, the bar is pretty low. For defense, it gets more interesting. I agree, Ted. The bar is pretty low for special teams. So let's just throw that out right away. Maurice Drayton's got a pretty low bar for success this year. Get more stability, I think, out of J.K. Scott and the the whole kicking battery as a whole. Mason Crosby, you're pretty well good, so just keep doing what you're doing. And just don't screw it up. The special teams has been in a position of screwing it up for the Packers, making the team actively worse for the past couple years, for quite a while, in fact. If Maurice Drayton can get them to just not be making the team actively worse, I think that is the... That is the measure of success for the Packers' special teams. And if I was a betting man, which I am not, but if I was, listening to Maurice Drayton talk today, I'm, I would be willing to bet that the special teams are going to improve. He had me ready to put on a helmet and run down the field and try to tackle somebody covering a kick. Just the way that he talks, the way that he talks about teaching, the way that he talks about getting guys motivated 
and speaking to them as individuals, helping them meet their individual goals for their career, man, that's like head coach material. If he can leverage this kind of stuff into a future position as a head coach, I wouldn't be at all surprised just hearing him talk the way that he does. It's getting way ahead of us, uh, but I think the bar is pretty low, so we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about special teams. But for defense, this is really the key question, right? The Packers made a change at defensive coordinator, so how are we going to know if things are better? They changed the defensive coordinator and pretty much nothing else. No new assistant coaches, and we're not going to have a lot of turnover on the defensive side of the ball. It's pretty much going to be this and this only. So I think there's two areas that we got to look at to determine if the Packers are doing better on that side of the ball. Basically, hard metrics and soft metrics. The hard metrics are easy. Those are the raw numbers. Those are the, the points you allow. Those are the yards per whatever, throw, catch, run, you get it. The soft metrics, I think, are more of a feel thing. And this is where it gets a little bit nebulous, but I think these are important questions. Things like, are you scared of the Packers' defense? It's been a long time since I think we can say that about the Packers. Can the Packers take away on defense what the opposing team does well on offense? It's been a while since they've been able to do that. Are the Packers doing things like using players well? This is something we criticized Mike Pettin for a lot. Soft metrics are going to be things like that. I don't know how you define them, but it is going to be more of a field thing. So let's talk about a few hard and soft metrics that we could use to evaluate Joe Barry. I'll give you three of each. First, under the hard numbers, tackling. Right off the bat, I understand this is kind of squishy. What exactly is a missed tackle anyway? How do we really compare teams across the league in terms of how they tackle? All fair, but there are some some fairly reputable numbers out there for evaluating tackling. And the Packers did really badly under Mike Patton in this metric. Pro Football Focus is probably your best resource here. According to them, uh, they graded out at 23rd, 19th, and 18th in the league in tackling the last three years under Mike Patton. So 2018, 19, and 20, they they were 23rd, 19th, and 18th. If the Packers can at least, at the very least, get into the top half of the league, that would be a significant improvement over most of the Patton era. Preferably, I'm thinking top third, like top 10 to 12, Try not to get greedy, but if they could get to there, I think we would feel much better about the Packers' defense as a whole. The second area I think they can improve in the hard numbers is in run defense. My big problem with the Packers' run defense is not that it gave up big numbers overall, but more that the Packers didn't make it inefficient enough to give up on the run. So the idea that that Mike Pettin, I think, had for the Packers' defense was pretty sound. He wants to sell out to stop the pass. That makes sense. This is a passing league. You want to figure out how to defend the pass as efficiently as possible. Don't give up big plays. Pressure the passer. Tackle well when they complete passes. It all makes sense. That having been said, you do want people to run to a certain extent. Running is less efficient. It produces fewer big plays. And if you can get people to waste time running the ball, you're doing your job already as a defense. 
but the Packers allowed four and a half yards per attempt last season. And that, I think, among other things in their run defense is what I'd like to see them improve. Four and a half yards is enough that teams can feel pretty comfortable running the ball basically all the time. That's 1.6 yards per play lower than their average pass surrendered. But teams feel really good when they're running for four and a half yards a crack, and they're likely to continue to do it. Just rein in the opposing run game a little bit. Get them below that number, and I think that's a step in the right direction. Finally, increase the number of turnovers. Turnovers are the ultimate hard metric for a defense. If you're taking the ball away, you're doing a really good job. Unfortunately, they also happen to be pretty fickle. It's hard to say we're just going to get more turnovers. That's a hard thing to do. It's hard to get more interceptions. It's hard to create more fumbles. And sometimes the ball bounces your way and you get a fumble recovery, and sometimes it bounces out of bounds and you don't even get a chance to fall on it. Even with that randomness, the Packers still had too few. In 2020, they were 25th in takeaways. In 2019, they were 7th. In 2018, they were 29th. I think it's fair to say in 2018, they didn't get a lot of takeaways because they had some personnel issues. No Zedaria Smith, no Preston Smith. Jair Alexander was a rookie. Uh, there was a bunch of other issues in the secondary. There was still haha Clinton Dix kicking around at that point. But in 2019, there's no reason, or excuse me, in 2020, there's no reason they should be in the bottom third of the league in takeaways. Not when you have Jair Alexander. Not when you have second-year Darnell Savage. Not when you have Adrian Amos. Not when you've got playmakers in the front seven like Zedaria Smith and Rashawn Gary and Preston Smith and Kenny Clark. Not when you've spent all this money to upgrade your defense. You should be better than 25th. However fickle turnovers might be, you should be able to do better than that. So I think as a baseline, if the Packers can improve their tackling, their run defense, and their takeaways, those are three big areas where they can improve in 2020. And if and if Joe Barry improves in those areas, he'll be having a pretty successful season. The soft metrics are pretty squishy, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but there were some quibbles with Mike Pettin's defense. And I think if Joe Barry can improve on these three things, we'll feel better. It's not so much a they were doing this and now they're not doing this and now the defense is better. But far too often, we use the phrase surprised by the obvious to talk about Mike Pettin's defenses, especially over the past year and a half, it seems. The Saints game this past season really comes to mind. You know Drew Brees has a wet noodle arm. So they're not going to go deep, especially with Michael Thomas out. And yet the Packers sat deep in their zones and let Drew Brees throw underneath again and again and again and again. The Packers also seem to be surprised at how the Saints got Alvin Kamara involved as a runner and a receiver. They won that game, but still, it seems like they were surprised by the obvious. The Vikings game this year, the home game, seemed like the same kind of thing. The Vikings ran wide zone. They ran play action with Kirk Cousins. The Packers seemed completely surprised by both of those things, and I don't know why. Gary Kubiak was their offensive coordinator. Of course they're going to do those things. Obviously. And yet, here we are, surprised by it. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, second time around. They, they attack Kevin King. 
They attacked Chan and Sullivan. The Packers did not adjust at all. Tremont Williams just sat there on the sideline. We've been over that. Situational awareness type stuff. If you have watched the Packers over the past couple years, there is something that you will see every single game, and you will yell at your TV, and there will be nothing you can do about it. It will be third and one, or third and two, and Kevin King and Jair Alexander will be standing eight yards away from their respective receivers for no apparent reason. Reporters asked about this in press conferences. Matt LaFleur couldn't give an answer. Mike Patton never gave an answer. It just baffling stuff like that. The NFC Championship game. It's shortly before halftime. What player are you going to call? Apparently one that involves giving up a deep, comple- deep completion for a touchdown as time essentially ticks off the clock. Then, finally, under this soft sort of metrics group, just getting guys into positions to do what they do well. And I don't know how you verify this, but it just seems anecdotally that this was something that Mike Patton did not always do particularly well. So, if Joe Barry can improve the Packers' tackling, improve their run defense, improve their takeaways, be less surprised by the obvious, have better situational awareness, and just get guys into positions to do what they do well, I think the Packers' defense could stand to improve quite a bit in 2021. At the very least, we'll have a good idea kind of what Joe Barry brought to the table. Those are some areas to watch. They're not the only ones, but they are worth watching. Let's talk about the Packers' linebackers and their running backs. We're continuing our position-by-position breakdown of the 2020 Packers, and these are the position groups at which we have arrived. We'll go through each of these groups uh, in the order of in order of the number of snaps they played, as well as looking at a couple of the uh, the players who maybe did not get on the field, who may be a part of the groups in 2021. So linebackers, first and foremost, Christian Kirksey. 548 snaps led the linebacker group, and as far as the good, he did make some plays on the ball. He had eight ball hawks. Those are that, that is that combined metric of uh, passes, defense, interceptions, fumbles, force, and sacks. His eight in 2020 in just 11 games were more than Blake Martinez's seven in 2019. That was always the knock on Blake Martinez. It was very solid, reliable, assignment sure, did not make too many plays on the ball. And Christian Kirksey, for all his faults, did that. The bad, kind of as expected, he was hurt quite a bit. Just 11 games. He is certainly no Blake Martinez in that effect. So for the Packers' investment, they got 11 games and some fair to middling linebacker play that could have been because he was quite possibly playing out of position. I haven't seen a super in-depth breakdown of this out there, but a couple of people whose positions and opinions I trust seem to think that Christian Kirksey was playing a bit more of a true middle linebacker role than he had in the past. Uh, In the past, he played more of like a a weak side linebacker, sort of run and chase sort of role, not having to diagnose all that much. And that was part of the reason for his struggles. Can't say that for sure myself, though. At times, it did look like he was processing fairly slowly on the field, so maybe there is something to that. Maybe his body just isn't what it was before his injuries, and he, he just couldn't move as fast, even if he was processing, processing quite quickly. 
His 2021 outlook is not great, as he has already been cut by the Green Bay Packers. By, I guess, is how I would sum that up. You ever go on a date with somebody, and uh, it's not bad, but you just know it's not going anywhere? That is the Christian Kirksey experience, at least for me. Wasn't that it was the worst thing in the world? It wasn't like an outrageously terrible signing. Just it didn't work out, and it's time for both parties to go their separate ways. Chris Barnes is next up. He played 421 snaps for the Packers in 2020. The good, I think Chris Barnes is very much a don't-screw-it-up type player for the Packers, it seems. Uh, He is one of the Packers players who actually graded pretty well as a tackler. Sixth overall on their defense, according to Pro Football Focus. Third among guys who actually played a consistent amount of time. He was not screwing it up pretty regularly for the Packers. A lot of credit to him as an undrafted free agent, not only making the team, but playing a significant role. I don't have a lot to complain about with Chris Burke, or Chris Barnes. Chris Burke is my Acme Packing Company colleague. Chris Barnes is the Packers linebacker. The bad with Barnes is that I think there are some physical limitations there, and I think that showed up a little bit in coverage. Didn't make a ton of pl- splash plays, really, just one fumble forced, one sack, but still... For an undrafted free agent to show up to start as many games as he did to make the team, that's not too bad. Not a lot to complain about there. His 2021 outlook, though, has to be a little bit murky. Joe Barry does seem to want more from his linebackers, from the inside linebacker position in general, than Mike Pettin did. That's a little bit scary if you are a Chris Barnes fan. He does seem, again, to have some physical limitations. Not the world's best athlete at that position in an NFL that is increasingly asking more and more from its inside linebackers. Barnes seems like he needs a fairly small role to succeed, and I'm not sure on a defense that seems to be headed towards bigger roles for its inside linebackers that he is prepared to handle that. Big drop-off to the next linebacker, Kamal Martin played just 190 snaps for the Packers defense in 2020. The good, he gets where he's going in a hurry, and he hits hard once he gets there. That was immediately apparent when he stepped on the field. 54 flies to the ball, and he hits hard when he arrives. The bad, though, is that you can see him guessing, and guessing is the big sin for an inside linebacker. You cannot guess. You must diagnose, and you must get it right the first time because there is no chance to make up for your mistakes. And quite frequently, Kamal Martin was leaving big holes in the middle of the Packers' defense, and that is a big old no-no. For that reason, like Barnes, I think his 2021 outlook is fairly murky as well. He's heading into his second season as is Barnes, so how's he going to handle a scheme switch? Can he cover a little bit more? Can he process faster? What exactly does the future hold for Kamal Martin? I don't think anybody can say for sure. Ty Summers is next up. He played 176 snaps. The good is that he was fairly reliable, if limited, in a pretty small role. The bad was that he was fairly unreliable the second he had to step outside that box. And you could see that any time Ty Summers was asked to cover at all. It was just not good. Opposing teams quickly identified where he was on the field, and they were quick to target him. For 2021, Ty Summers, I would say, look, there's nothing wrong with just being a special team stalwart, good athlete, former seventh-round pick, thrive as a special teamer. 
pencil them in there and lower your expectations accordingly. Wrapping up the inside linebacker position is our friend Oren Burks, who played all of 96 snaps in 2020. As far as the good stuff, honestly, I got nothing here. There were opportunities there. On a defense where Ty Summers got 176 snaps, you have to think the Packers would have given Oren Burks a shot if they thought he could do it. He's going to be an an expensive special teamer in 2021 if he's on the field at all. And it's kind of a shame because it seems like Oren Burks is a really nice guy. He's a phenomenal athlete. And by just about all accounts, it seems like he is an extremely studious player. He's very prepared. He just can't put it into action on the field. And sometimes that happens. You just can't make your body do what your mind knows it's supposed to do as well as some other guys can. Professional sports are weird, man. It's uh, The margins are so thin between a guy like Oren Burks, who's a great athlete, but just can't seem to process it quickly enough to make it happen, and somebody, I don't know, Devin White to use kind of the prime example right now of an athletic guy who's who's got it all together. Now, White's probably an even better athlete than Oren Burks is, but the difference between them as athletes and the difference between them mentally is just not that big. But it looks huge because small margins look big in professional sports. Switching over to offense... We've got a pretty small position group here in running backs. Aaron Jones led the way with 539 snaps, only a few less than he played in 2019. And as an aside here, I don't want to turn this into a should the Packers re-sign Aaron Jones or shouldn't they sort of thing. But if you're giving out big contracts to people, like the highest paid guy at your position group sort of money, I'm not sure that I want to do it for a guy who's playing fewer than 600 snaps a season or around 600 snaps a season. I want to devote that kind of money to guys that are on the, on the field for 900 snaps, for 1,000 snaps, my offensive linemen, my top-end receivers, my quarterbacks, my corners, my safeties, my high-end pass rushers. That, I think, alone is a good reason against signing a running back to a big contract. But that's not why we're here. The good for Aaron Jones is pretty obvious. Even in fewer snaps, he was great. Uh, He had 22 explosive plays this year, second on the team behind Devontae Adams. The bad kind of boils down to what could be the final memory of Aaron Jones in Green Bay his fumble in the NFC Championship game, which was just an absolute killer. Who knows where that game ends up if Aaron Jones does not fumble deep in Packers territory. As far as 2021, look, we don't know. I would lean towards him not being in Green Bay. In fact, I predicted as much, I think, on the very last episode that we did. Brian Gutekunst says he wouldn't rule out a franchise tag. I am very skeptical of that. I would think Brian Gutekunst would probably want to deploy his resources a little bit better than that, but um, 
you never know. I still think Aaron Jones is elsewhere in 2021. Jamal Williams is next up, 418 snaps. The good, boy, came in looking like a souped-up version of the old reliable Jamal Williams, and that's basically what he was in 2020. Tied his career high with 10 explosive plays. I think his athleticism limits his ceiling a little bit as a player. He's not as explosive as Aaron Jones is, not terribly fluid as a pass receiver, but none of this, we're in the bad category now, is specific to 2020 Jamal Williams. That's just who he is as a player. Sure, he's not a sports car, but you can get your go- get where you're going in things other than a Lamborghini. As far as 2021 goes, I'd say his outlook is pretty mercury. I think more than anybody else, any other player that is leaving the Packers, potentially, it comes down to money here. He does not have designs on being like the highest paid running back in the league like Aaron Jones. At least it doesn't seem he does. He does not have the stigma that comes with being an offensive lineman who's had a couple back injuries and is now heading into his potentially third contract with the team that Corey Lindsley does. He does not have the long bad history that Kevin King does. What he has is several years of being a consistent, reliable contributor who is rarely, if ever, hurt, who doesn't fumble, who gets good gains but not great gains, who is a reliable pass protector. What is that worth? What is that worth to the Packers? What could that be worth to somebody else? I don't have an answer to all that, but there are some valuable skills there. How much are those skills worth exactly? I will say an A.J. Dillon, Jamal Williams backfield could be pretty interesting. That's a lot of one pretty similar body type, though Jamal Williams is not exactly the same body type as A.J. Dillon by any means, but I think you understand what I'm going for. They're both more power-oriented backs than speed or wide-to-the-corner sort of running backs. That's kind of interesting. I I would be interested in watching that. But the money will talk there. Tyler Irvin, to put the end at the beginning, is probably not in the Packers' plans for 2021. 142 snaps for Mr. Irvin, and when he was healthy, he really did seem to be able to stretch the defense laterally. Cool to see. The bad was that he was very rarely healthy. Especially as the season went on, the injuries seemed to mount up and mount up and mount up, and he had a pretty banged-up, pretty fragile-looking running back. I put him with the running backs because that's what his position says on Packers.com. You can say he's a wide receiver or whatever. Uh, He's kind of his own position. But we're talking about him with running backs just because that's where he fits. I don't think he's back in 2021. Hopefully the Packers draft a new version of him for this offense because I do think there is a role there. Speaking of roles, A.J. Dillon didn't really find one in 2020. He had 97 snaps last season, and when he was in there, he did produce, and he produced pretty well. The bad really wasn't his fault. Just puzzling usage, I think, for Matt LaFleur. That's something we talked about a few times over the course of the season. COVID-19 kind of wiped out the middle third of his year. But heading into 2021, he's got to be kind of the odds-on favorite to be the lead dog in the Packers running back group. I would... Well, I have already predicted that he's going to lead the Packers in rushing yards. And I don't think there's any reason to assume 
that it's going to be otherwise. Unless the Packers draft another running back high, which would just uh, make the entirety of Packers internet explode. Dexter Williams played just seven snaps for the Packers in 2020, and good luck getting a read on him. We keep hearing about his physical tools and what a good fit he is for the zone scheme that they want to run. I don't know if we've seen it. Thinking back to 2019 preseason, I'm not sure we saw it there. We thought we were going to get a chance there to see it in the middle of 2020, but then he got hurt in his one and only opportunity. Kind of feel bad for him. I think it's time to try something else here. And the something else may already be on the roster because the Packers have a couple guys sticking around that may be of interest heading into 2020. First is Patrick Taylor. I feel like I've been talking him up for a year now. The good is he was practicing by the year's end. He started the season on the pump list and never really made it to the active roster. The bad is by the time he gets to the field, it'll be have been, almost been two years since he played an actual football game. I think he gets a shot in 2021. He was one of the prospects that best fit our rubric heading into the 2020 draft for guys that kind of fit the height, weight, speed, athleticism, productivity thresholds we were looking at, like his size, kind of James Stark's sort of size and shape. I think he gets a shot. I think Mike Weber out of Ohio State also gets a shot. He's a practice squad guy late in the year. Why not give him a look? Now there's sort of traitsy dude, not overwhelming athleticism, but why not? He was around, you had him in camp, you had him practicing. Why not give him a shot heading into 2020, 2021, I suppose. So I've got for you on linebackers, on Joe Barry, on running backs, on J.J. Watt. Covered a lot of ground in this episode. And if you enjoyed the ground that we covered and you enjoyed this extra long episode of Blue 58, I would encourage you to head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thepowersweep, and uh, support us there. That's what helps us stay ad-free. That's what helps us continue to produce these shows that you enjoy. And you do get a healthy dose of bonus content there as well as uh, access to our Patreon-specific Discord server. It's a great way to hang out with some other Packers fans and talk about the team that we love as well as whatever else is on anybody's mind. I did throw up some new Patreon content today, gave you a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into producing an episode of Blue 58. So if you are a Patreon supporter, check that out. If you're not, consider supporting us for any dollar amount that you choose. We have some new tiers uh, that you can choose to support us there, though everybody gets the same Patreon benefits. It's just your way of uh, helping us continue to keep the lights on here and do what we do to bring you good content. That is all I have for you on this episode. I appreciate you listening in. If there was something in here that you enjoyed, I would appreciate it even more if you would share this podcast with somebody because that's going to help us continue to grow this conversation we're having around the Green Bay Packers and ultimately help all of us become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.